Before we start today, I want to introduce a new sponsor to the podcast, Certified Site Safety. This is a company that I am proud to recommend for patients of mine and anyone else seeking help in evaluating mold and other toxins that might be present in their home. If you've listened to a prior podcast of mine, Is Your Home Killing You?, you know that I interviewed Joe Reese, who is a true mold detective. Joe evaluates homes and has saved many of my patients from toxins in their home by evaluating them and teaching them how to remedy it. If you see or smell any effects of water damage in your home, Joe and his team at the Certified Site Safety are the team that you want. Their website is www.certifiedsitesafety.com. And Joe welcomes calls to even his cell phone, 914-437-5454. So many of us don't know where to turn when our home is making us sick. Now you know. Please contact Certified Site Safety, and Joe will help organize his team to remedy your problem. Welcome, everyone, to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today, I have a returning guest, Dr. Samuel Mann, who uh, I think we did a podcast over a year ago where we discussed his approach to hypertension. He's known as one of the super experts in the field and very well respected at his institution at Cornell and all over New York. But today, we're going to revisit hypertension with a more holistic mind-body connection in mind. And I know a lot, of, a lot of my patients know that I do functional and holistic medicine in addition to immunology. So it's, it's kind of bridging those two worlds. And Dr. Mann, I think, has a very similar approach in his area. Before uh, I get into giving, introducing Dr. Mann and, and uh, asking him some questions, I want to tell a story, which I don't remember if I told last time, but I think it's very telling and it sets the tone for today's podcast. I would say probably maybe a decade ago, it's possible, a young man came to my office, he was around 30, who was having some severe asthma. And uh, he came in, he actually brought his five-year-old daughter, because I think he had to watch her that day, his wife was working. And I go to examine him, you know, to check out about his asthma, and he was wheezing, but I checked his blood pressure, which I routinely do in new patients, and it was 240 over 120. Now, the surprising thing was, when I told him this, he wasn't phased in the least. I was the one who was trembling. I said to him, I think we have to get you to the emergency room. You may have a stroke. Uh, you know, this, do you know that, you know, he wasn't on any medication for this? I said, I think we have to, you know, something has to be done. And he looked at me and he said, no, I've had this before. You know, I have my daughter here. I can't go anywhere. So I said, okay, hold on a second. And I, you, you know, I thought for a second. I said, you know, what's the best place to get help for like a, a tough case for hypertension? And I remembered Cornell had like a special center for that, you know, because hypertension is treated by most internists. But when you have a very dangerous or difficult case, you want to bring in the top guns. So I actually referred him to Cornell. Uh, not knowing a specific doctor there. And fortunately, he got in fairly quickly. And, you know, I, I felt a little bit of a relief. I know he'd be in good hands over there. And probably like a week later, 
uh, I get a call from Dr. Samuel Mann. And Dr. Mann gets on the phone and he told me that he saw my patient. So I said I was really relieved. You know, he starts talking to me about, you know, about specific things about the patient's case and what to do and how this was what really floored me. What really floored me was that in Dr. Mann's history, which he's obviously a superb clinician, he told me that in getting the patient's family history, he found out that the patient's mother was killed in front of him as a little boy. Now, I didn't get this type of history. And so we started talking and I was asking, well, yeah, I could see that being very traumatic. What does that have to do with his high blood pressure. And then Dr. Mann gave me a little mini lecture on repression and how this whole mind-body thing works. And then Dr. Mann and I got to talking a little bit more, and I said, you know, this sounds to me a lot like Dr. John Sarno's work, only he worked with, you know, back pain and, and some other muscle pain patients. And then Dr. Mann chimed in and goes, oh, I worked with Dr. Sarno. I, he actually wrote a chapter in his book later on. So we kind of hit it off. And I thought, wow, this is really an unusual doctor who obviously not only is an expert in handling the medications of hypertension, but really goes deeper. Uh, so that was the beginning of a wonderful, you know, collegial friendship relationship with Dr. Uh, Mann. And as I said, you know, again, his influence and his association with Dr. Sonner was quite interesting. Now, Dr. Mann, as I mentioned in my first podcast, wrote a book called hypertension and you. And th that was really good. We went over that a lot because I, I, a lot of times too, it's interesting, you know, a lot of internists treat blood pressure, you know, hypertension, but a lot of it's like throwing darts at the wall. You know, it's, uh, there's not really always a very scientific way. A lot of these doctors choose their medications where Dr. Mann discusses in that book, how certain medications are more appropriate, you know, for certain patients and their background and depending on sometimes their hormone levels, et cetera. Well, now Dr. Mann has come out with a new book, which I couldn't wait to get my hands on. I just got it last week, and I went right through it. It's called Hidden Within, Within Us, which is really a fascinating account of his clinical experience and how the mind-body connection is associated with hypertension and some other conditions like the ones I treat, like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue. So after that long-winded introduction, I'd like to welcome Dr. Sam man to the podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Dean. Appreciate the introduction. Yeah, I hope it wasn't too long-winded, but I, I really think it sets the stage. So I'm going to ask you a lot of these really interesting questions that I want to know, and I think our listeners will too. So you and I, we have that Dr. Sarno connection. And honestly, I gave a lot of thought to this before the podcast. So Dr. Sarno was probably a Freudian back specialist. I mean, if you read his book really carefully, which I have and I keep close to me a lot of the times healing back pain because it comes in handy when my back acts up, you know, he really dealt a lot with what Freud thought and, you know, about this whole idea of, you know, childhood trauma and things like that. So the first kind of, you know, you know, slightly humorous question I want to ask you is, are you a Freudian hypertension specialist? Have you studied Freud? I have not studied Freud, but I'd say there's one prominent difference. Freud is talking about patients in whom repression failed and were having psychological or symptomatic manifestations. Okay. Uh, I deal more with patients in whom 
the repression did not fail and they're not depressed, they're not anxious, they're not crazy. I think that's the main difference. Main difference in terms of Dr. Sarno and I, uh, I think we're talking about a similar phenomenon, repression, but Dr. Sarno is talking mainly about chronic pain, functional symptoms. And in fact, it tells his patients they've got to rule out an organic cause for their illness uh, before assuming it's a mind-body thing. Yeah. The difference is that I'm looking at medical conditions that in fact are linked to repression and nobody is looking at that. And uh, it is beyond fascinating and I think very important. Yeah, no, you bring up so many you bring out so many interesting cases that we're going to discuss in the book. But one more thing I want to just dwell on with Dr. Sarno, because his book really is a classic in so many ways to me, and I, and I think to so many of his patients that he got better, was that one of the things I remember he, he points out in his book, and, you know, and I know I went to some meetings that he was running, he always felt that the back pain, these, these patients that had repression, repressed rage, you know, all those kind of, you know, uh, subliminal symptoms, I guess I would call them, was that, you know, for example, a lot of this happened to what he called the do-gooders, you know, the ones that were always, you know, you know, keep a stiff upper lip. They were the ones that were holding the family together. They were the copers. They don't complain. You know, it's interesting because, you know, back in the day, and, and that, that's what links to you with the hypertension, like it used to be thought, you know, the type A personality gets hypertension and cardiac disease. And these are the yellers and the screamers. And honestly, I'm, I'm sure you found it in your practice, I find it in mine and in my own family, the yellow and the screamers are pretty healthy. They don't, <laughs> their blood pressure is not going up. It's the people that swallow that, you know, angst, that, you know, the issues who are coping. Do, do you think that's, you know, you see a similarity in, in that respect? Yes and no, it is similar. Of course, the people who scream and yell, if with all their anger, they also drink and smoke. Then there is an inter indirect mind-body relationship uh, as opposed to a direct one between emotions and illness. So emotions that are felt can lead to bad health habits. And in that way, there is a direct connection. But does the anger in all that lead to medical illness directly? They've never been able to prove it. Yeah. I, I think less. I really, I really do. I think the ones that get that out of them. And, you know, unfortunately for the people around them, I don't think it's so pleasant, but they tend to, you know, be doing better than sometimes, you know, the patient you see there sitting very stoically, like that patient I described in the introduction. I mean, they're just holding that all in somewhere. And uh, I, you know, know what's I interesting also, a lot of that literature focuses on anger. If you had a choice of the ability to repress each of the following emotions, which one would you most want to be able to repress? Anger, anxiety, sadness. It's a tough choice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of that. I think I'd like to get rid of all of them. I mean, I'd like to release all of them. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the uh, people who have been through trauma, the fear and the emotional pain as opposed to anger. And a lot of the psychosomatic literature is about anger and uh in any event, I think we're splitting hairs a little bit, but um, no, it's a fascinating topic. You know, it gets to the other thing, which I, I, I find incredible about what you do, and I'll, I'll point this out. You know, it seems like you, unlike a lot of clinicians, focus a lot on early childhood uh, trauma and the family history. And, you know, most clinicians, you know, internists, family practitioners, they're pretty, they're busy, 
as you are busy, I've, you know, and seeing patients, you know, every 15, 20 minutes trying to, you know, obviously do what you have to do to ask these very personal, sensitive questions. You know, I know you teach at the medical school. I teach at the medical school where I am. Do you think that it's really a mistake that we're not emphasizing enough to doctors to ask these questions? Like, again, your really famous question is, and we're going to talk about something interesting that you, a lot of times you ask, when did your, let's say, father or mother die and how old were you? That, that to me was like stunning in reading your book because, you know, sometimes, you know, we'll ask patients to write it on their intake forms and it's just glanced at. Nobody goes any deeper into that. So why do you think that question is so important? And my other second part of it is, how do you approach that with a patient? It's, you know, again, like I was stunned how you got that information on my patient on probably your first visit. I mean, it's a type of thing that where it, it could take a therapist maybe six months <laughs> to, to approach that. So, so t- you know, tell me how you do this. All right. Well, first of all, I have to do it the first visit because the first visit is the only one where we have time. After right. that, the revisits are shorter. Right. And it, it's the worst time to do it because you've just met the patient. They don't know you. I try to make them comfortable. Right. Some patients, I will tell them, I need to ask some personal questions. I don't know if they are relevant or not unless I ask. I hope you don't find it intrusive. Mm. And with that introduction, almost no patient has ever objected to that. I think they feel safe with you. Sorry, I think they feel safe with you, which is obviously a testament to the kind of clinician you are. Because again, you know, patients pick up on doctors' body cues. I know myself too. Like, you know, whether I'm having a good day or a bad day, when I walk into that room with the patient, I have to be there for them. And the the way you are also, you know, just be there attentive and listening. So, yeah. Yeah. And humor helps too. Absolutely. In appropriate situations. (laughs) (laughs) But it is interesting. No textbook. Every every medical doctor, every medical student is taught to ask about family history and how old was, if the parent was young when they died, we have to ask what was the cause so we know their genetic predisposition. Nowhere, anywhere does it ask, recommend, and how old were you when that parent died? It's the most incredibly important question. And if you're talking about trauma, there aren't many traumas much worse than losing a parent during childhood. You know, in clinical medicine, we don't use trauma questionnaires. And and actually, trauma questionnaires is another topic I, I could address if you're interested. In medicine, either we focus on the physical symptoms or on current status, uh, current stress, uh, current anxiety, depression. And most of the mind-body uh, interview in terms of uh, the medical uh, interview is about current situation. And nobody really pays attention to the past. Yeah. It's so important. I'm going to share a story. Again, I wish we had talked a little bit. I would have maybe tried to get you to include some of these stories. I had a patient that I was caring for, again, had severe allergies and asthma, you know, one of my areas of specialty. And I was taking him for a couple of years. And I happened to I happened to also know him personally. I had grown up, grown up in the same neighborhood where he was. He was older than I was. Uh, he was a pharmacist in the area. And, you know, he began to, to trust me. You know, he, I was younger than him by probably by 15 years. But, as a, you know, taking care of his asthma and everything, you know, we developed even a closer relationship. 
And one day on the weekend, I get a call from him. He goes, I'm having chest pain. I think I'm having a heart attack. So I said, well, I said, I think you should go to the emergency room. I said, I'll meet you there. I said, but you got to take care of this. He goes, no, no, no. I am not going to the emergency room. So I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I said, uh, he goes, please, will you meet me in the office? Now I was real, again, you know, nervous, you know, in some kind of situation like this, you know, want an unstable condition, but I did it. You know, I was young. <laughs> I ran to my office, opened up my office, took out the EKG machine, uh, hooked him up to the leads and uh, ran the cardiogram and it was normal. It was fine. Uh, and he looked very shaken. He looked a little bit pale. So I was still nervous. But as soon as the, the EKG came back perfectly normal, I said to him, I don't see any what we call ST elevations. There's no sign of a heart attack. All of a sudden, his demeanor changed. So I unhooked him from the cardiogram. We sat and talked for a few minutes. And this was almost the essence of the work you're talking about. He starts to say to me, he goes, you know, Dean, he said, I just turned 50 a few days ago. He goes, that's, that's the year my father died of a heart attack. I was like, whoa, yeah. And, you know, he was fine after that. There was no problems. But again, I think it really reverberates what you're saying. I mean, that had never come up in any of our conversations. You know, again, especially in my area where I was treating him. But, you know, the, um, how would you explain that? You, again, just the, again, the repression, the fear. What what, what would you? Okay. Um, I hope I'm not going off topic, but I, I just find some of these no. fascinating yeah, it's about a five-minute answer. First of all, in medicine, to the extent that we pay attention to emotional issues, it's about the stress and the depression, anxiety patients describe or complain of, the emotions they're aware of. The emotions they are unaware of does not exist in the practice of medicine. And the interesting thing is the day-to-day -day emotional stress, those emotions are trivial compared to our most powerful emotions. Our most powerful emotions in many people are emotions we're unaware of. So the patient you're talking about uh, probably, I, I don't know how old he was when his father died suddenly at 50. Probably in his 20s. Probably in his 20s, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And very often we need to function. We need to move on. We repress but it's in there. You know, it's, I'm sorry, it's very interesting. This particular person too was very much an athlete. You know, he, he was a good ball player because I know that. And he, again, I think it probably drove him, you know, to keep in very good health, you know, because of his dad passing away. Yeah. And um, it's also, it's not absolutely all or none. I think mm. to some extent we repress the worst of it and are aware of some of it. But I want to say two things about repression. The first thing is that with repression, the emotions are buried. And very often we need to do that. If you have a, a child who's being abused or suffering from trauma, it is very important. Repression is not a psychopathology. Repression is a gift. Mm. It's the ability to not feel that which would overwhelm us. It is the healthiest of reflexes. I mean, obviously the healthiest is to deal with it, feel the pain and eventually move on. There's some things that are just too much. And evolution had to give mankind the ability to repress emotion. And 
uh, in talking to patients, I describe repression this way. And it's interesting because a number of them, after we have the discussion, they say, thank you. I'm I'm glad you told me that because the other doctor told told me it was in my head. Mm. And they get the difference. Emotion uh, Repression is not uh, psychopathology. It's a gift. And ironically, if you buy books on emotional resilience, the word repression does not exist in those books. No. It's not recognized. No. And another important point is the difference between repression and suppression. A lot of people are either unaware or confused about that. Suppression, I know the emotions are there. I'm going to keep busy and focus on everything else to keep my mind off it. I don't want to deal with it and and go out and run 20 miles or what have you. You're suppressing it. I don't want to deal with it. But they're aware of it. And they're that's aware. the key thing. And, and what, how does that differentiate from denial? Okay. Yeah, those are your three, suppression, yeah. repression, denial. Let's right. please explain that to the listeners so they can... Okay, so suppression, repression, and denial, three terms of avoiding emotion. Nobody, most people are not aware of the difference between them. And I'll I'll pick an example. Yeah, examples are the best, right? Patient was recently diagnosed with cancer and it's fatal. He's going to die. Denial would be, well, I'm not upset because the doctors are wrong. I think they're wrong. I don't have cancer. That's denial. It's primitive. It's denying reality. Right. The suppressor, knows the prognosis, says, well, you know, I can sit here and, and, and be immobile in fear. I just got to get things done and I'm going to keep my mind on other things and try to do as much and, and be with people and try to avoid that fear as much as I can. That's re- that's relatively healthy, right? I mean, suppression. It's a, it's a, yes. I mean, the, yeah, I mean, like I had to have a choice of these three. I think suppression is, to me at least, makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and I think also uh, the other is repression where we're not aware that we are repressing it. And that's, that's why nobody talks or writes about it. We're not aware of repression when we do. So, uh, yes, I was raped and beaten and all that. It never affected me emotionally. We don't know that we've repressed it. We're not aware of repressing it. It just, I moved on. And with, in the face of overwhelming things, especially at a young age, uh, so in that case with cancer, yeah, I know I have cancer. I know I'm going to die, but I'm okay. I'm not upset. Mm. Well, how about the case that I discussed in the introduction? Also, I wanted to get to like, we, and we're going to obviously want to get to how you treat these patients. So, like, I, I don't really really call, but that patient that I had sent to you, he had that crazy high blood pressure. Dangerous, you would think. I mean, you know, that's I don't care whether it's due to repression or something else. It's dangerous. You know, you could get a stroke. You could have a bleed. How do you? What's your approach with that? I mean, is it a combined medical? And like, as you mentioned, it's very, you have to be very careful re- lifting the lid on that repression because it's been a, a defense survival mechanism for that particular person for many years. What's, what would be your best approach? And, you know, how do you handle that with patients? Right. That's the key question because the mind-body literature doesn't deal with that. The mind-body literature deals mm. with how do we better deal with the emotions we're aware of mm-hmm. and how do the emotions we're aware of affect our illness. Mm-hmm. Problem is, if you have a patient who has repressed emotions related to trauma, and it's not just trauma, it can also be a history of overwhelming stress. And I'll give an example. Uh, a, a immigrant comes to this country, he has no money, uh, has no career yet, 
doesn't even speak the language, mm. got to figure out how to survive. Any penny he makes brings over another relative, builds up a business, works 16 hours a day, seven days a week, puts his kids through school. And they do it. And at no point do they feel overwhelmed or anxious. They, they just march through it. Um, it's the key question is, all right, so we uncover that history. What do you do about it? And the first key question is, well, on the one hand, it was a horrible thing and the emotions were repressed and it was repressed for good reason. Today, conditions are better. If the person's life today is a mess, this is not the time to deal with emotions from old trauma. Mm -hmm. Often, though, things are good today, stress-wise. There is the opportunity to get in touch and heal, and some patients do. But it has never occurred to them that that emotion is still there. Mm -hmm. And some people grab it and run with it and, and, and get in touch I think it's very important to reassure patients that their repression was their means of resilience. Their brain did exactly what it needed to do. You're not emotionally ill, but the emotions, even though we're unaware of them, do linger. Do you still, you have to get that, medicate them to try to bring it into a safe range, the blood pressure? You mentioned in your book, too, in some of the cases, you know, uh, beta blockers, which are it's very interesting because it's used a lot for post-traumatic stress syndrome and SSRI. So, so tell us a little bit about just sort of the combo, because let's say there are patients out there with – and now I know you see very interesting cases because, again, in your book, you point this out. And I know in our discussions, like sometimes you'll see a very young person in their 20s with super high blood pressure – and it shouldn't really make sense. I mean, there may be a family history, but at that younger age, typically they don't manifest that high. And you start doing your search. But again, to treat these patients, how, what's your, like a little bit your right. formula? There are a few pathways. One pathway is to communicate an understanding of what I think is going on. Uh, some patients will grab it and get it and, and start the healing process. Most patients don't. Some do, most don't. Then the question is, what I do? What do I do with them? In the specific case of hypertension, there are a couple of different pathways. One, most ordinary hypertension is not mind-body. I mean, hypertension was studied by research psychologists for decades, more than any other medical condition. And after decades of that research, it led nowhere. And if you look at the guidelines or understanding today, nobody talks about the mind-body condition because it didn't help us understand hypertension and it didn't lead to effective treatment. Everybody's pressure goes up with stress and comes down. Every pay, everybody's pressure goes down with relaxation techniques. They're transient. That's not hypertension. So getting back to the patient with mind-body related hypertension, for one thing, the 90% or 80% of patients who have ordinary hypertension that is not mind-body, we use blood pressure drugs that target the kidneys, diuretics, ACE inhibitors, and such. In patients where it is a mind-body hypertension, it's driven not by the kidneys, but by the sympathetic nervous system. So often I use medications that alpha blockers and beta blockers that target the sympathetic, they block the sympathetic nervous system. And they work much better in those patients than the diuretics and ACE inhibitors that don't work as well. Mm. 
But of course, a patient can have both genetic and, and health habits that lead to hypertension and a mind-body component, then you need drugs from both categories. Okay. So alpha and beta blockers are better for especially the, those young patients with inexplicable hypertension. Almost, if it's real hypertension, almost all of them have a story. Yeah. And they respond very nicely to alpha and beta blockade. Now, you also have patients with severe hypertension. You have patients with, with paroxysmal hypertension, episodic, severe episodes of very high blood pressure. And interestingly, I've not had patients have a stroke during those episodes, but they're usually very symptomatic, very sudden onset, very severe elevation. And blood pressure medication in the emergency room can lower it. Mm -hmm. But what do you do to prevent them? And in the literature, no matter what they tried, nothing could prevent recurrence of episode after episode after episode. But I figured, well, if it's for repressed emotions and they all have a story, uh, let's see if an antidepressant uh, can help distance the emotions from awareness. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the patients I, I describe in the book, no distress, no anxiety, no depression. He was a Holocaust survivor. But he said that didn't affect him emotionally. Man. I offered him an antidepressant. He refused it because he was offended. He's not depressed. Right. He came back because he was having episodes. It worked. And I recently published, uh, put together a paper talking about the response to antidepressants in patients with episodic severe hypertension. And of 24 patients in the case series, 22 responded to a uh, antidepressant and did not have further episodes. That's remarkable. That's very remarkable. So yeah, I hope our listeners can really appreciate what, what you're saying today. And again, how, you know, as we say in medicine, the etiology, the underlying cause is the key. Don't just treat the, the symptoms or the signs. You know, yeah. and, not, and not everybody's a cookie cutter you know, falls into a certain... Everybody's different. And the ironic thing is with episodic hypertension, there's no other treatment that works. Patients have attack after attack, repeated ER visits, they're afraid to go anywhere. This is the first treatment that can prevent them. That study where 22 out of 24, it's a 90% response rate. I sent mm. it to a major medical journal. Oh, no. It was rejected. Oh, as I was wondering. That would, that would be front page news of the, of the Science Times, you know, if that got yeah. published. Did it get but published eventually or no? Well, what was the reason they didn't publish it? He said, it does not meet our criteria for relevance to clinical practice. Wow. They just don't get the concept of repression. There's such a resistance to it, wow. not just in medicine, but in medicine in particular. Yeah. Concept that doesn't resonate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well that's, that's, your doctor, we both know Dr. Sarno. He was a, such an interesting, I, I, I hate to use the word character, but he really was. He was like this curmudgeonly, you know, academic doctor who, and, you know, he was the chief of, um, a Rush, was it Rush uh, at NYU? Rusk, I'm sorry, Rusk, uh, you know, Rehab Institute. And for many years, he was the chairman of the department. And then as he sort of retired, they gave him this little office, you know, and he was doing all of his work, you know, his workshops for all these mind, body, back pain patients that he was seeing. And they, they kind of, you know, in the beginning, everybody kind of like, you know, just kind of said, oh, he's just doing his own thing. 
And, and after a while, they ended up promoting him a little bit because they saw he was bringing so many patients into the center. But, you know, I, you know, I can imagine. I just – I know the battles that he went through, you know, to, to – you know, like, so I can only imagine what you've gone through very quietly, you know, uh, over at Cornell, which is also a very academic institution. Yeah, and it's just – it's a concept that most it, most people just don't get it. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I decided to write the book. No, it's it's great. Mm-hmm. And I also have credibility because I've written at least 50 articles that right. are straight medical. Right, I mean, right. If a psychologist wrote this book or psychiatrist, they're like, ah, you know, what's he know? I mean, you're in the trenches. You're treating all these type of – you know, uh, medical, you know, hypertensive, you know, kind of t- conditions that so when you bring this other perspective, you have the credibility and you also bring just such an interesting perspective to it. And also uh, the psychologists don't see these patients. No, they don't. No, they don't. Because they don't they're even check blood pressure. They're, they're, <laughs> well, no, they're not depressed. They're not anxious. They're not seeing psychologists. Right, right. Repressed. Right, right. These are the walking wounded who are, you know, quietly wounded. Everybody talks about PTSD. And among soldiers, they talk about PTSD rate of about 29%. Mm. What fascinates me is the uh, 71% who don't get PTSD. Yeah. Those are the resilient ones. Yeah. A lot of them. Well, you know, actually, it, it brings me to one other thing that's in your book. And I know that's something that's helped me personally, honestly, is faith. And, you know, when you have a lot of anxiety and or repression or worry about the future, uh, I think sometimes you have to believe in there's something bigger than yourself, which a lot of people struggle with. And I know you talk about it in the book. Do you find that that sometimes has been beneficial to people? Because, you know, a lot of also what's interesting, you know, I did a lot of workshops over the years because I was interested in functional medicine. I went, you know, to John Kabat-Zinn, who was very well known in mindfulness meditation. I also went to Herbert Benson, who at Harvard was the classic, you know, he came up with the um, the relaxation response where he said, you know, you can meditate away, get your blood pressure down. And, you know, I think some of it was a little bit overblown because, the, you know, you really have to buy into the whole I think Eastern medicine approach, honestly, because I, I went down that path. I was very interested back in the uh, early 1990s. Um, so, what do you think about that, as far as uh, you know? Well, I think, uh, and I mentioned it in the book, and, and the question that I raised compared to a couple of generations ago is: our generation more emotionally resilient or less emotionally resilient? And I make the case that we are less emotionally resistant. Why? One, uh, we don't have faith like previous generations did. Two, we don't have community. Right. That I thought was so important, what you you said in that. You know, again, just to make an analogy, and I hope my listeners really appreciate this, because I traveled around the country doing a lot of training, and I went to Dean Ornish his program, you know, he worked with reversing heart disease with his meditation, his yoga, whatever. And he, I remember when I was talking to him and I did on the podcast, I'll never forget, he quietly took me aside because I said, Dean, what's the, the real secret to this program? Is it the vegetarian diet? Is it the yoga? He says, Dean, Dean to Dean. He said, it's the support. And one of the things he, when he used to do many lectures at his retreat, he used to ask the audience, you know, we had to use about 100 participants and they were all like patients. I was the one, only doctor there. I just wanted to go through the program and see what it's like. He goes, how many of you live within 50 miles or whatever, 25 miles where you grew up? And I happened to, so I raised my hand. But there's, there's a handful of people. Then he also asked, he goes, this is also from the Almeida study. He goes, how many of you 
have somebody that you could call that would drive you to the emergency room if you were sick. You know, and then again, a few handful of people. And this was part of the Almeida study done in California, where they found, I think it was about 10 questions. And if you scored poorly on this, your you know, longevity was you know, significantly decreased. So again, people don't appreciate having that, what I call the net, having those, that, that family, that support, or if it's a religious community, people that you can rely on yeah. absolutely relieves the, the stress in your life. The big city is pretty anonymous. So, yes, it is. You know, yeah, that's why I think people gravitate to it. Yeah. Yeah. Loss of faith, loss of community. Yeah. And loss of a, a much less of a large geographically in one place family. Families are smaller. Uh, children and grandchildren are not living in the same community. Right. So there's loss of family, community, faith. Yes, I think we've lost a few pillars of. Uh, emotional resilience and uh, boy without uh, repression it's harder you know it's so funny it's like the old tv series cheers you know and they, they start the song that goes you know you want to go to the place where everybody knows your name you know when you're in a smaller community or whatever too you, you know, people know your family and people look out for you whether it's good or bad maybe sometimes they know too much about you but in new york or some of those big cities absolutely you could be anonymous uh, that's why celebrities and actors sometimes like it. They could walk the streets and nobody you know, turns their head. But, you know, for the average young person or an older person that's alone, you know, again, without any uh, close by family, that's a stressor for sure. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to bring up or talk about in the book? I kind of had most of my questions answered. Uh, did I miss anything or? Oh, what I want to emphasize, I mean, hypertension is one condition. Uh, fortunately, it was my specialty, and blood pressure actually is like a telltale, a physiologic telltale. And um, it was very helpful in coming to an understanding of the role of repression. The two things I want to emphasize are one, um, I'm not saying most people with hypertension that it's mind body, it isn't. Okay. Um, but the subgroups where it is are thin young patients who shouldn't have hypertension otherwise. Right. Uh, people with severe, uncontrollable hypertension, there's often a story, and people with episodic hypertension, almost all of them, it's mind-body and it's repressed emotion. Mm. Now, going to other conditions, um, and I see patients with other conditions, but they're mainly seeing me for their hypertension, and I see this in other conditions. And it's a story of either a history of trauma or overwhelming stress and resilience and the absence of emotional consequences. It's that combination. And in other conditions, I see that combination. And the important question is, well, what percentage? I see it in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, colitis. And these and other conditions, we know the inflammatory markers. We have treatments that have side effects. They work, they don't work. They have to take them for a lifetime. The one thing they don't know is what triggers the inflammation. Nobody knows. And we do know that in these conditions, uh, we talked about sympathetic nervous tone in hypertension. You also have increased sympathetic tone in colitis, in autoimmune diseases. Yeah, these are a lot of the vagal, the vagal nerve, which is, you know, I, I interviewed many a couple of years ago, Kevin Tracy uh, at the Feinstein Institute. And I think that the whole, the vagus nerve is, you know, it's called the vagus nerve because in Latin, it's the wandering nerve. It goes all over 
the body that uh and it's very much controlled by the our you know our uh i think it's the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems yeah and um there's a, an inverse relationship people with increased sympathetic tone have decreased parasympathetic vagal tone and decreased vagal tone is associated with increased inflammatory markers. Right, right, right. That's what he's looking at. It's really fast because he did amazing work. Where it was originally in like animals, but he they actually progressed and they do it in humans now, where they have actually a device they put in which blocks something in the vagal nerve. And it there was stimulates, this patient, right, stimulates. stimulates the vagal nerve. And it was fascinating because there was this patient that had severe rheumatoid arthritis who had failed all drugs and this and that too. And the patient was playing tennis a few weeks after. Uh, he was in yeah. Europe. They did it. It was really yeah. remarkable. So it's interesting. Science supports this in, uh, the role of the autonomic nervous system, sympathetic nervous system, which is mainly related to emotion. Yeah. And yeah. it's elevated in all those conditions. The other interesting thing is that when I talk about trauma and overwhelming stress, the tool that's used by the research psychologists are childhood trauma questionnaires, childhood adverse childhood events questionnaires. They're objective, but they're very limited because there are a lot of types of events that are not in those questionnaires. There are events earlier in adulthood that are not in a childhood questionnaire. And also the questionnaires there's a difference between, oh, my father slapped me versus I was beaten to pieces. I don't even see how a person could answer that on a written paper. That has to be human to human. I mean, if, it, if there's any example where the, uh, a personal history with a doctor is so critical, you know, because I could see no, patients, if, if they're repressing, they're not going to even write that down on the paper. And anyway, so, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, that's, that's where our role becomes so important. And the trauma questionnaire, you get a higher score the more traumas you have. They do not at all quantitate the severity of a given single trauma, which can outweigh five other traumas, but they don't measure right. severity. You right. check a box. Yeah. And getting the story is so much more important. And uh, studies show an increase in the history of adverse childhood events. And again, limitation of questionnaires, but it is objective migraine, inflammatory bowel disease, here we go again, autoimmune disease, all these conditions where we don't know the cause, and they all have an association with uh, previous trauma. Yeah. So it's an unstudied, huge issue in the mind-body connection. And after a half century that focused on the stress we feel day to day that led nowhere, this is an entirely different understanding that has yet to be begun to be studied. Yes. Well, you may become the Freud, I said, of hypertension because, uh, <laughs> we, you know, you definitely opened people's eyes. You opened my eyes. And I know this book will open, you know, a lot of patients' eyes to, again, the, the portion that may affect them. So I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Is there anywhere we could send patients to, to either get your book or any other things that you're writing about or your website? The uh, book is available on Amazon and uh, will be available on Kindle within a day or two. So uh, various bookstores, um, but definitely you'll find it on Amazon. I hope you find it very interesting and uh, illuminating. It is, absolutely. Uh, I hope for all of our listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast, that you get a chance to leave a review uh, at The Smartest Doctor in the Room. And until next time, stay safe, stay well. And a review on Amazon.
Oh, and a review on Amazon for Dr. Sandman's book. Again, one more time, Hidden Within Us.